Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. My name is Marianne Freiberger. We've recently been running a project on PLUS called Science Fiction Science Fact, in which you get to vote for your favorite question on the frontiers of physics. The question that topped the latest poll is, what is time? And to get an answer to that, we asked Paul Davies. He's a renowned theoretical physicist and cosmologist at Arizona State University, and he's the director of BEYOND, Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. And apart from having worked in many areas, including cancer research and astrobiology, Davies has also written many popular science books, including two on time, called About Time, Einstein's Unfinished Revolution and How to Build a Time Machine. I spoke to Davies on the telephone line from Arizona, and we started out by talking about Einstein's theory of relativity and how that affected our understanding of time. Right. Uh, well, uh, the uh, simple way of expressing it is that Einstein uh, found a connection between space and time. We normally think of them as quite separate things. People did before Einstein. They thought space was space and time was time, but he showed that there is a link between them, uh, that's not the same as saying time is just another dimension of space. Uh, but what it says is that we can't think about time and about space in isolation. We have to think about them together. And uh, in particular, what he showed was that there isn't a universal time, that your time and my time get out of step with each other if we move differently. Now, uh, the reason we don't notice this in daily life is because uh, the, uh, the benchmark against which you measure movement in the theory of relativity is the speed of light, which is, of course, very great. It's 300,000 kilometers a second. Uh, and in everyday life, we don't uh, move uh, anywhere approaching that speed. And so the effects that Einstein described uh, back in 1905 uh, are very small in daily life, but they're not so small that they can't be measured. And so uh, if, for example, uh, I get on a plane and fly from uh, Phoenix to London mm -hmm. and back again, and I compare my clock with a clock left in my office, they will be out of step with each other uh, by a few billionths of a second. Okay. So you see, this isn't something we, that a human being would notice, but it's easily within the capability of a modern clock to be able to, me to measure it. And uh, this uh, time-warping effect of motion is put to practical use with the global positioning system because uh, this works with a series of orbiting satellites. Uh, these satellites are moving quite fast, uh, and they're also moving uh, in the Earth's gravitational field. I'll come to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but the point is, if you didn't, uh, factor in this uh, time-distorting effect of motion, mm. uh, then uh, your GPS would very soon uh, accumulate errors so that within an hour or two you would be lost. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is a real effect. This is not uh, not some sort of uh, you know mad mathematician's uh, nightmare. It mm -hmm. uh, it is really the case that movement changes time. So I want to make the statement a little more precisely, which is that the when I say that my time and your time get out of step, what this really means is that the, uh, the duration of time between two events yeah. uh, can, uh, can vary depending upon how the observer moves mm -hmm. between those events. And so um, in the case I described to you, the two events are my departure from Phoenix and my return to Phoenix. Um, and uh, 
uh, all that uh, I'm saying is that the duration of time between those two events will be different depending on whether you stay in Phoenix or get on the plane. Okay. Uh, and now, uh, these effects can become uh, very large if you approach the speed of light. Mm -hmm. Humans can't approach the speed of light yet, uh, but uh, subatomic particles can, and in particle accelerators where the world around, for example, like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, uh, these particles are whirled around at very, very close to the speed of light. And, and their time is distorted uh, by a factor of hundreds or thousands uh, right. because of their motion. Okay. And uh, th this will affect the way they behave. And uh, the engineers have to take that into account when they design these machines. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are enormous time warping effects. And so we have um, great confidence that this is correct. Well, Ernst Van told us in 1905. Um, he went on... He very soon after that realized that gravity must affect time, uh, and he had a clever argument, which I won't go into, already by 1908, but it took him to 1915 before he published uh, his uh, final, completed, so-called general theory of relativity, mm -hmm. and in that he explained how gravity has an effect on time that can easily be described um, basically, gravity slows time, uh, and so time runs a little bit faster up on the roof than it does down in the basement of your house. Okay. And again, it's a tiny effect, but it can be measured, even between distances that small. You can actually measure it. Wow, I didn't um, realize that you could measure yeah. such small distances, yeah. But the most direct way is to put a clock on a rocket and shoot it into space, and then mm. uh, the effects are really quite large uh, and can easily be measured. Uh, but... Um, if you want a seriously big time warp from gravity, then you have to go where there's a very big gravitational field. Mm. So at the surface of a neutron star, uh, then time would, uh, if you had a clock there, it would tick at about 70% of the rate of a clock on Earth. So we're talking about a 30% slowing of time. And the ultimate time warp is the surface of a black hole, where, um, in a sense, time stand still relative to our time. Uh, if, if you, that doesn't mean if you go there, you would notice anything peculiar about time. Uh, but what it means is when you compare uh, clocks in, in the two different locations, they're enormously out of step. So that, that's the basic thing. Now, I have, what I haven't explained from any of this is why time and space are linked. But they are. It comes out of this uh, description just as there is a slowing of time, there can be a stretching of space or shrinking of space, you know, it depends on which way around you're looking at it. Um, and so when time gets warped, space gets warped as well, such a way that a combination of space and time together, which is often just abbreviated space-time, um, the, the, the space-time itself is unaffected by the motion of the observer, mm. but intervals of time and intervals of space on their own are affected. Okay. And so it's called the theory of relativity because what it means is that the duration uh, of time is relative to the motion of the observer. And um, what does that mean for a direction of time? Now, this is a whole different topic, and people are, you know, often conflate the two. And uh, uh, the, um, the whole subject of the direction of time, or the arrow of time, as mm. it's often called, uh, is um, one that goes back uh, before the theory of relativity, and it's a problem even there. So that the, the, uh, once we have the theory of relativity, it puts a slightly different complexion on it, but it doesn't uh, any more solve it than did uh, classical physics. And so let, let me just state what the problem of the arrow of time is. Okay. That, uh, in daily life, we quite clearly notice the dis distinction between past and future. That is to say that uh, 
if you play a movie backwards, you know, if you put, take a, just a movie of some, any everyday scene and play it backwards uh, yeah. to an audience, they always laugh. Yeah. And the reason they laugh <laughs> is because it looks so silly, it looks preposterous. Um, and that's because we can easily recognize uh, that some things go in one direction of time and they don't go backwards. So rain, raindrops fall from the clouds and rivers flow downhill, snowmen melt and... <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, ice put in uh, warm drinks melts uh, and it goes on and on and it's yeah. not uh, hard to find uh, almost everything around us has that character of being one way in time. But uh, the mystery is that when we look at the laws of physics uh, then they show no uh, preference for time forward or time backward um, with, uh, with one very minor exception in the field of uh, nuclear uh, of uh, particle physics, which I won't get into. Mm -hmm. So, if you take, say, the laws of electromagnetism or gravitation, mm -hmm. they're completely time symmetric. Uh, and so, then the problem has always been: how do we account for this uh, asymmetry in time yeah. uh, in daily life when the laws that govern all the the atoms that make up everything around us are symmetric in time and uh, the answer, it's not actually not that hard to find where the answer lies, and it's because um, the universe uh, started out in a very special state. And that, let me just give you a simple analogy. Uh, if I give you a, a pack of cards that I've just bought from a shop, and, and you open them up, you'll find that they, uh, they come uh, in numerical order. Yeah. In suit order, you know, you get the hearts, one, two, three, and so on, and the yeah. space, one, two, three, and so on. So they're ordered. Okay, so if I give them to you and I say, well, now shuffle them, uh, when you finish shuffling, uh, then they're going to be less ordered. Uh, and if I say, well, keep unshuffling, uh, you know, maybe you'll get them back to where they started. Well, it's true that if you, if you go on forever, eventually you will, uh, by just by chance, they will be shuffled back into an exact uh, sequence again. Uh, but we know it will take a very long time. So... Uh, if we uh, only observed this experiment for, you know, a day or something, we'd say, well, this is very strange because there's nothing about uh, the act of shuffling which chooses forwards in time or backwards in time, and yet uh, we see a distinct arrow that these, uh, this pack of cards started out ordered and it's now disordered, mm -hmm. and so this is a directionality. Same thing in daily life. You have an egg, you drop the egg, you break it, you'd have a hard job putting it back together again. But you see, it's got nothing to do with the laws themselves, it's just because you started out oh, with right. the system in an ordered state. Yeah. And it's become disordered just because there are many more ways that, so with a pack of cards, many more, more ways the cards can be disordered than they can be ordered. And that's just uh, exactly the same uh, with the universe as a whole. And so uh, the burden now is to explain why did the universe begin in such an ordered state? And, and there's no agreed answer to that, because partly because we're now tangling with the subject of cosmology, and uh, there's no agreed model of cosmology. We all think the universe began with the Big Bang, and we know it's expanding. But what we don't know is whether the Big Bang was the ultimate origin of time, or whether there was a time before the Big Bang, and yeah. so what the state of the universe was then. And it depends very much on the the model you choose as to how you resolve this issue. It's still a mystery as to why our universe went bang in such an orderly state, right, but, yeah. uh, but it clearly did. There are some subtleties about that, which we probably don't want to get into, uh, which is that the, the matter and uh, radiation of the universe uh, 
back at the beginning were not in an ordered state. They were in a maximally disordered state. They were in a state of thermodynamic equilibrium. But the gravitational degrees of freedom were in uh, an ordered state. So the universe started out very sort of smooth and expanding uniformly. And so that part was ordered, but the matter and the energy were disordered. And, And these two, the story of how these two things tangled together is a bit of a complicated one and we probably don't want to get into it here but yeah. it is quite well understood but anyway there's one thing I've glossed over here connecting your first two questions because you said well you know how does Einstein and relativity and so on affect this uh, issue there's one key point here and Einstein made it uh, very uh, dramatically in a letter to the wife of his friend Michelle Besso uh, when, he, when, when Michelle died uh, and he wrote this letter to his widow uh, and he said, um, the past, present, and future are only illusions. Uh, and I suppose he was trying to be comforting, thinking yes. that, uh, <laughs> well, he might be dead, but, you know, he was once alive, and uh, and in physics it makes no difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but uh, what, what he meant by that is that uh, in uh, the theory of relativity, because of this, uh, you know, time being relative, and there being no absolute universal time. You can't say that Mm. there is a time which is uh, the same throughout the universe. What it really means is you can't really uh, divide up um, the time into past, present, and future Mm. in any way that different observers will agree on. So you and I might be able to sit down in in a room and agree that tomorrow is tomorrow and yesterday is yesterday and we're having this conversation today, but we, we can't extend that to somebody you know, living on another galaxy, yeah. for example, yeah. because it will depend on how they're moving and how we're moving as to what is tomorrow for them and what is yesterday. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it means you can't uh, neatly divide up time into past, present, and future. We can still make use of that in daily life because we're talking about um, not only now, but here and mm-hmm. now. Uh, so we can talk about here and now, but we can't talk about there and now in any meaningful way. Yeah. So. Um, that's what led Einstein and others to, and in fact all physicists would share this view, to think that time is not something which comes into existence. The future, past, present, and future are somehow all there, yeah. all at once. It's often called block time. Yes, I've heard that expression, uh, yeah. And uh, I like to call it the timescape, because it's a little bit like the landscape. You imagine a map, you unfurl a map, and the whole of the landscape is there before you all at once. If we had time as like the fourth dimension on this map, then that's all there at once as well. And there's, there's nothing in physics that singles out a particular now, particular present moment. That's a, that's a mystery too, as to why it is we have this distinct impression of a present moment is somehow moving through time. The flow, the flow or the flux of time, you must not confuse with the arrow of time that we've just been talking about. One thing we haven't mentioned so far is that Einstein's theory of relativity only applies to the world at macroscopic scales. But when you look at atoms or subatomic particles, you need to look to that other great development in 20th century physics, quantum mechanics. Time enters into the original formulation of quantum mechanics in a very different way than it enters into relativity. In the original formulation of the theory developed by Schrödinger and Heisenberg in the 1920s, time is there as an absolute ticking away in the background, much in Newton's spirit. 
But Davies told us that something quite amazing happens when you try and apply quantum mechanics to the whole universe. It plays a strange role when you come to the most uh, extrapolated form of quantum mechanics, which is applying applying to the universe as a whole, the subject called quantum cosmology. And there, if you try to write down a quantum mechanical description of the whole universe, what you find is that the time parameter actually drops out. It's not there at all. Uh, and so some people have interpreted that to say, oh, time doesn't really exist. What right. they mean is that it's possible to give a description of the universe without any reference to, to time. a time variable. You just look at correlations between, for example, the size of the universe, if you have some uh, parameter that's describing its expansion, uh, that if you have a correlation between the size of the universe and, say, the value of some field, uh, then bigger universes mean a different value of the field. We would describe that by saying, well, uh, as the universe evolves over time and gets yeah. bigger, so this field changes in value. We use that language, but actually all you're talking about is a correlation between yeah. uh, the universe as one physical object and the field as another physical object, and time can be removed completely. That's only in this extreme case of this uh, quantum cosmology, which I have to say a lot of physicists don't believe. I mean, they think it's a, that you can't apply quantum mechanics to the whole universe, or that if you can, we, you know, we don't know how to do it. Now, Davy says that he does believe that time exists. He thinks it's something real and we can measure it as well. But he does mention another possibility, which is that time isn't really fundamental, but an emergent phenomenon. Uh, we don't know that time, uh, and for that matter space, are the ultimate uh, objects out of which we should build a description of the world. It's entirely possible that these, uh, the, the concept of space-time, to put it together as Einstein wanted uh, to do, concept of space-time might be an emergent property of the universe, which is to say that, you know, the Big Bang might have, if we go back to the extreme traditions there, that it may be that a description in terms of, terms of some other variables is more appropriate, and that when we see the world, which has a well-defined space and a well-defined time, or well-defined space-time, that that is just some particular state of the universe that has emerged out of this ferment of the Big Bang. Uh, and, so, it's, uh, and it's not really a truly fundamental thing. It's more like a state of the world than uh, the, the deepest level of reality. But it's easy to say that. It's easy to put those words together. Yeah. If nobody has a theory... Uh, where anyone believes uh, that, that uh, describes what I just told you. So and, it's just at this stage an idea. What, what would these more fundamental things be? Does anybody know? Well, yeah, the trouble is, of course, we, because we don't have anything like them in daily life, where you can invent words that uh, describe them, and people have. They've have John Wheeler, for example, talks mm. about pre-geometry, uh, and there are other things, other people have invented their own terms. Um, but... Uh, you know, they're not anything that we're going to be uh, encountering in daily life. And uh, therefore, we're just resorting to mathematics. And so the question is, just like we, um, you know, if you imagine, uh, uh, say, how um, in condensed metaphysics you've got some material that uh, seems to have well-defined properties. Maybe it's a block of rubber or something. There, there, there it is. And, and you think, well... You know, we understand it and its properties fairly well, but then you look down at the molecular level and the atomic level and you see that really 
the rubber is built out of other things, you know, atoms, molecules, and so on, that have completely different laws uh, that somehow combine together, and that the rubber is one particular state where the matter and the laws have come together. Um, and it just, and it could have been different. They could have been put together differently, and you wouldn't have rubber, you'd have something else. Mm. Uh, in the same way, maybe the world of space time is. Uh, uh, what we often say is a low-energy emergent or uh, effective um, uh, description of the world. And, what, and I say low-energy because we believe that in the Big Bang everything is intensely hot, uh, and so uh, the world we now live in is a sort of cooled-down version. And maybe the universe cooled down and gave um, gave the space-time, but maybe it could have cooled differently, and you wouldn't have had uh, anything like space-time. You know, it may be that, that it is built out of something else, but we don't know what that something else is. Sure. That's so. amazing. <laughs> That's quite difficult yeah. to contemplate. So so really, it's kind of quite fair to say that we don't really know at all what time is then, really. Well, if you want to, you know, you can always, uh, with these sorts of questions in physics, you can always say, well, it is, it is just a primitive object or primitive uh, concept mm -hmm. out of which our description of the world is made and that it can't be reduced to anything else. You know, it's the bottom level of reality that there is space, there is time, and there is uh, you know, energy and matter or something, and that that's it. And that the job of a physicist is to explain how those things come together to make the world that we observe. Um, but you could also argue that, no, these are not the, 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 the bottom level of reality, that there is a deeper level, uh, and that uh, one day we will explain time and space uh, in terms of something else. But mm. then that only pushes the question another level. Yeah. You could then say, well, you know, if this is pre-geometry, what is pre-geometry? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my, my answer to these questions is always that the, the job of the scientist is to postulate something, uh, some description of the world, and it usually, for physicists, means uh, some mathematical equations, saying that's my theory of how the world works, and then you test it against experiments, and if it does work, um, you don't argue, well, where do those equations come from? You know, that's just our best attempt to describe the world. Mm. And, so it's uh, a description rather than an explanation in some way. I think so. So it seems that despite all the developments in physics and cosmology over the last hundred years or so, we are not really that much closer to understanding what time really is. Maybe we have to be content with a description of it rather than a deep explanation. But we're out of time now. If you'd like to read more about the Science Fiction Science Fact Project, or if you'd like to read the article accompanying this podcast, then go to the PLUS website at plus.maths.org. And then click on the Science Fiction Science Fact link in the right-hand margin. And don't forget that you can also vote for the next question from the Frontiers of Physics that you'd like us to put to an expert. But that's it for now. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>